You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. This is Lecture 10, given on December 13, 1911, entitled Truth and Error in Light of the Spiritual World. In discussing important themes in these lectures at our annual gathering, my comments on contemporary scholarship and on the statements of modern authorities may seem excessive to some in our group. It may also seem extravagant for me to speak of the statements of earlier authorities who are recognized by those of today. It is not as though we are attempting an extensive bridge-building between those authorities and this group. That may be unnecessary, if only because most of those who enter our group do so because of deep longing and a connection to spiritual life. They are not here for scientific proof of the spiritual world's existence, but to understand the reality of what their hearts and souls long for. Consequently, many of us may consider the inclusion of today's scholarship to be excessive. A reason that could be proposed for considering modern scholarship is that, while it is perhaps not completely valid, it has some usefulness. We could say that the theosophists meet people in the ordinary world and are challenged to show reason for their views. It is therefore necessary that they have some knowledge of how non-theosophists think to have the possibility to refute objections and to support this spiritual scientific view of the world. We have often discussed the fact that it is possible only to a small extent to convince contemporary opponents of spiritual science with proofs of any kind. The world views of people, inasmuch as they are opponents of this spiritual science, are based on their thinking habits rather than on proof. Those people whose thought habits preclude their seeing the world in a spiritually scientific way will certainly not be open to proof. The reasoning I have just characterized is barely valid in terms of presenting matters such as those discussed yesterday. Within our circle, such matters should serve primarily to alleviate any confusion that might arise in us, since we must continually listen to statements about how our perspective of the world is unjustifiable, at least scientifically. We are, therefore, not concerned with refuting our opponents or with supporting the spiritual scientific outlook, but rather with helping theosophists develop the feeling that our worldview is solidly grounded, even compared with what recognized science has to say. Our concern is, therefore, that theosophists do not become confused. Much more time would be needed if I were to present a fuller commentary on officially recognized science. During these lectures, which can also be important to broadening our overall view, if there is an opportunity to consider modern science, the basic purpose would be merely to arouse a feeling that there are ways to discuss conventional science while also standing on firm ground when depicting spiritual science. Thus we intend to suggest a way of discussion when you have the time and opportunity to do so rather than providing any comprehensive content content for such discussions. When we speak of the physical body in scientific terms today, there may be many inner contradictions. Doubts may arise. But this kind of science has one advantage. The physical body is undeniably a reality. When we speak of psychology or psychosophy, as we did last year, we enter a domain in which some people, in fact, deny the existence of the soul, the object of psychology. In our time, we must deal not only with materialism, 
but also with a certain kind of psychology that wants to be a, quote, soul science without a soul, unquote. Yesterday, in our discussion of Aristotle and one of the modern authorities on Aristotle, we saw an example of how it would not occur to their science to deny the soul. They scientifically consider the soul in a very intelligent manner. As will be clear from the few indications given yesterday, there can be no question in Aristotle's case of his denying the existence of the spirit. But we saw in the example of Brentano's psychology how a keen modern observer has to stop short in describing the various soul capacities of what we term the spirit. In studying pneumatosophy, or the science of the spirit, we thus enter a field where it, is, where it is possible to find people not only disputing certain laws of that science, denying aspects of the inner being, but also denying the objective existence of the very object of their study. As can be taken from what I said yesterday, the existence of the spirit has become a very arguable question for a good many people. We must seriously take up the question of why such a controversy about the reality of the spirit exists for many human beings. The logical answer is obviously that we perceive the body, what is corporeal in us, with our external senses. Physical facts act upon people with such strength, act upon them automatically, that people are not in a position to, not, to deny what those facts say. A somewhat similar situation exists for people with respect to the soul, for we experience feelings, mental images, impulses of will, and everything else that of necessity arises from the experiences of the soul, all the sufferings and pleasures, the joys and the pain, and so on. Those who do not begin by denying all such experiences, and do not describe them merely as foam on the surface of physical phenomena, must recognizing that the soul in some sense has reality. Probably means must recognize that the soul in some sense has reality. Although present, spirit is supersensible and not directly perceptible. From there it is only a short step to a complete denial of spirit. Now all seeking for the spirit could seem astounding if it were true that the spirit actually belongs to the supersensible world only and never becomes involved with the world in which we ordinarily live. In spiritual science we concern ourselves with research about the spiritual world, and it is often emphasized that the facts presented are derived from a view of the human being based upon self-development by means of meditation and concentration exercises. This is to say that spiritual facts are not simply given us to start with. They must be obtained by ascending to insight of a higher kind than what is at our disposal in ordinary life. Thus it could seem as though the spiritual world, unlike the physical world, is wholly hidden and could become known to us only by leaping over our ordinary capacity for knowledge and climbing to a higher level of insight. If that is true, we have to ask how it is that human beings long for a world that never really reveals itself to their everyday selves. This is an objection that only believers, not scientists, are prepared to answer. A believer will be able to counter it with another argument, that through evolution the spiritual world has revealed itself to humanity and that our knowledge of it arises from the revelations to us from the supersensible realm. Those who are inclined to reject supersensible revelation, however, find that what has just been said to be all there really is. Consequently, even the most broad-minded scientists might say that there may be a spiritual world, but that since no evidence of it exists in the material world, we are not encouraged to consider it. Philosophers who are idealistic or spiritually minded may object to that viewpoint. Such objections have surfaced repeatedly with the passing of time. Indeed, recognition of the spiritual by certain philosophers 
has been based on objecting to that argument being considered seriously. It is said that there exists a possibility of transcending the given world of external perception. We can build a world of truth within ourselves, and simply because we are human beings, find the material world of our perception unsatisfactory. In this way we build a world of truth within us, and when we truly examine that world, we see something there that transcends all physicality. We then cite the great comprehensive views and ideas about the universe that could never have come into the human being as a result of merely external perception. They must enter us from a side different from that of the senses. The existence of the world of truth thus suffices to convince us that we are sharers of a spiritual world, for we live in it with our truth. This would have been sufficient reason for a philosopher such as Hegel to reject the argument just described and to justify accepting the existence of that spiritual world to which sense-free thinking also belongs. Those philosophers whose whole orientation enables them to recognize the total independence of the world of truth as opposed to the rest of reality always find sufficient justification in the spirit's self-movement for accepting spirit. Thus we could say that there are enough people in the world for whom the existence of truth, the concrete existence of truth, of the real world of ideas, proves the reality of spirit. We can, in fact, say of Aristotle that his view is similar, that he too held the belief that human beings inhabit a spiritual world with their concepts and ideas, with what he called the nous or reason, nous is N-O-U-S. And since this spiritual world is present in human beings, it, is the, it thus exists and is sufficiently proved to exist. On the basis of what we can know of that world as we move in it, we can draw conclusions about other facts and beings of the spiritual world. That is how Aristotle came to his conclusions about the Godhead and the soul's immortality and to other such results that were discussed yesterday. The modern philosopher Hegel speaks of a self-movement of the spirit, meaning the self-movement, self-energized activity of concepts that in their lawfulness have nothing to do with the external world around us. He is referring to the independent activity of the spirit, and he sees in this activity that the spirit appears, reveals itself, and proves its existence. Later attempts, such as that of Rudolf Eucken, who from a spiritual scientific perspective is not regarded as very impressive, speak of a self-comprehending, and thus of a proving of its own self by spiritual life. Footnote Rudolf Christoph Eucken, 1846-1926, German philosopher and professor. He wrote works on historical philosophy, especially Aristotle, on religion, and on his own philosophy of, quote, ethical activism, unquote. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1908. End of footnote. A closer examination of this reasoning, however, does not show it to be proof of the spirit. It is extremely important for theosophists to be aware of this in order to realize how hard it is to get a clear picture of all that the external world, including its philosophy, has to offer when it comes to proving the existence of the spirit as such. We are much too casual about this. The fact that truth exists is not a proof of spirit. For let us assume that nothing exists beyond the corporeal physical world. I am going to use little more than an analogy to speak of something that in fact would need a whole lecture series to discuss thoroughly. This external world, with its forces, or as it is now fashionable to say, with its energies, expresses itself in what we call the mineral kingdom, and then develops without enriching itself with new energy into the greater complexity of the plant and animal kingdoms. Let us imagine that it finally works in such a way as to build the human being out of the pure combination and pure working together of all the energies of the physical world, 
so that in the complicated instrument of the brain the world of thought can spring up and form itself in the bodily nature as physical processes do. Let us suppose that this seemingly crude assertion by many materialists that the brain secretes thought as the liver does gall were to be taken seriously. Let us do so briefly, picturing the human brain being built in such a complicated way out of purely inorganic, physical energies that it produces through its activity what appears to us to be our spiritual life. For a moment let us assume that the materialists are right in asserting that there is no such thing as spirit. Would it not still be possible, in the sense of these materialists, to speak of a world of truth such as is found in Hegel's philosophy as the, quote, self-movement of concepts, unquote? You see that it isn't meaningless to raise this question. For if it is answered with any sort of affirmation, it shows that even a philosophy like Hegel's could be materialistically explained, and this means nothing less than that all philosophy that calls itself idealistic or spiritualistic could be dismissed. We need only imagine that what is produced as thoughts by this complicated brain in the sense that it is thoughts that compose this world of truth, is really only reflections of the external world, though it would take a great deal more than this brief statement to indicate why that is so. Put an object in front of a mirror and you get an image of it. The image is like the object. It isn't the object, just an image of it is produced in the mirror as the result of purely material processes. Nothing more need be admitted than that you are dealing with a mere reflection. You do not have to prove the reflection's reality. All you have to do is take the materialist's position and say that nothing is involved but the physical energies that develop the complexity of the human brain and call forth a kind of reflection of the external world, that all thought reflections are merely representations of the external world. Then it becomes unnecessary to prove the existence of the spirit. For thoughts which are all there is are mere pictures of the outer world and it is as unnecessary to prove the reality of thoughts as it is to prove the reality of mirror images. Not much can be done when people say that there are concepts not derived from external perceptions since we never find a circle as we know it in geometry, nor a triangle, in general we find none of the mathematical truths. Then, however, we could say we see them as pictures that arise in the brain. They may not exist outside us, but there are many close approximations to them, and thus is formed what appears as an abstract concept. People create within themselves the supersensible truth, and it is supersensible, that is truth and cannot be denied. <clears throat> Materialists, however, can certainly do away with that objection. Truth does not, as such, constitute a viable refutation of the materialistic view. Now we are in a fine predicament. Truth, whose existence suffices to convince numberless individuals of the existence of a spiritual world, or at the very least serves as an indication of it, since it is indubitably supersensible, does not actually prove it. Yes, it is supersensible, but that does not mean it has to be real. It may just be a collection of images, in which case nobody needs to accept it as real. We must keep in mind that our possession of truth does not prove the existence of a spiritual world. Although we comprehend the truth and live in it and according to it, we can never fully arrive at spirit in this way, since we are always confronted by the fact that truth can be a mere reflection of the physical world. It could be said that it is almost impossible to conceive that there is anything in the world through which ordinary people may be led to acknowledge spirit. People such as the 19th century philosopher Feuerbach come along and ask what the gods were and what a god means to humanity. Footnote, Ludwig Andreas Feuerbach, 1804-1872, a student of Hegel in Berlin, he abandoned Hegelian idealism for a naturalistic materialism and subsequently attacked orthodox religion and the concept of immortality. 
He believed that God is a projection of inner human nature. End of footnote. Their answer is that people simply experience their soul content, their thoughts, and project them out into the universe. That is what they make it, that is what they make into their God. Then it is easy to prove the unreality of the divine, because it is just the projection of an unreal world of thoughts. Feuerbach thought Aristotle to be in error for building proof of the existence of God out of the presence and objectivity of the human thought world, of the world of reason. He said that the human being has reason in the soul, which can be applied to things. That presupposes that the all-powerful nous is present everywhere. As he describes it, however, it is only the projected human reason, and if that is only a reflection, it is nothing to build on. Exponents of spiritual science must achieve such clarity as this on these matters. They must be able to see clearly that the paths usually traveled to get from external reality to acceptance of the spiritual world appear rather unreliable. On closer examination they prove to be completely so. Should we now therefore admit that before penetrating into the world of clairvoyance There is no possibility of becoming convinced of the existence of the Spirit. It could almost seem so. It could appear as though there were no justification for anyone other than clairvoyants who perceive it and those who believe them to speak of the Spirit. That is how it could seem, but it is not the case. We come at this point to a question. The external world with its material content does not in itself give us any inkling of a spiritual world if we do not already know of its existence. Nor does the inner world of truth point to any such world, since that may be just a mirror image of the external world. Have we anything else at all besides the sketchy indications given? Yes, we do. It is error. Not a single item should be overlooked when it is a matter of establishing complete understanding of the world. Besides the truth, there is error. Now you will say that error cannot, of course, lead to truth, and it would be strange indeed to use error as a starting point. I also absolutely did not say, however, that because it is fruitless to take a stand on truth, we should therefore base our stand on error for it would not lessen the number of our opponents if we were to suggest basing insight into the reality of the spiritual world on error. Error should also not be suggested as a starting point in the quest for truth. That would be worse than foolish, it would be absurd. With regard to error, however, something that cannot be denied is that it exists, has presence, and is real. Most important, it can crop up in human nature and become an entity there. If the external world has created an apparatus for mirroring itself in the brain, and if the content of truth is the sum of all the mirror images, there is still the possibility of error surfacing instead of truth. In that, someone could be like a defective mirror or a mirror that creates caricatures of the external scene. A mirror that distorts instead of reflecting properly is false. Error could be comparatively easily explained by the statement that it is made possible by the false mirroring on the part of an organ of perception that has been formed by the external world. Truth can be seen as a reflection or mirror image and error likewise. One thing is impossible, however, and that is to explain the correction, the transforming of the error into the truth as a reflection. Try as you may to persuade a reflection that is presenting a caricature of some external object to turn itself into a correct representation. It will not change. It remains as it is. It shows an incorrect picture and remains an error. Human beings do not have to live with error, however. They have the possibility of overcoming it and transforming it into truth. That is what is important. We can demonstrate in this way that there is indeed a reflection of external reality in the fact of truth. 
By transforming error into truth, we also demonstrate that error is not, as such, a reflection of external reality. To put it in other words, when error crops up, its existence in the real world around us is not justified. The existence of truth in the world around us is justified, and to accept the truth we need to accept nothing other than the existence of the external physical world. Nothing is reflected from the external world that could serve as a basis for accepting the existence of an error. There would have to be a factor not belonging to or in any way directly related to the external world. If the sense perceptible reflects itself as a supersensible picture in truth, then if the sense perceptible is reflected as an error, there must be a reason other than that lying in the sense perceptible itself for the resulting error. What are we looking at then when we perceive that the error is there? We are looking at a world that consists of more than a material world of the senses, more than the world of external physical facts. Error can originate in a super-sensible world only. Let us leave that topic for the moment. Now let's see what supersensible research has to say, not for the sake of proving anything, but just for the clarity's sake about this curious place of error in the external world. Let us imagine that we are given to such self-contempt as to be driven by some impulse to think a thought that we know to be erroneous. Let us thus assume that we are purposely thinking an error. This would appear at first glance to be an undesirable act, but it can serve a useful purpose in a higher sense. Anyone who does this with all the necessary energy and attention and keeps repeating it will notice that the error becomes something very real in the soul, that it is doing something. Such an error, deliberately entertained and recognized to be an error, proves nothing and explains nothing, but it affects us. Its effect is extremely significant because we are not distracted by any awareness of a truth when we deliberately think an error. We are absorbed in our own activity as we think it. If this process is carried on long enough, we find that it brings about the situation described in title How to Know Higher Worlds as an evoking of hidden soul forces, of forces not previously there. <clears throat> Giving oneself up continuously to external truth does not lead a person very far in the direction of what is meant here, but the deliberate strengthening of error in one's soul can indeed result in evoking certain hidden soul forces. Put as I've just put it, this is not meant to be a recommendation. You will therefore find that I have quite properly left out of my book title How to Know Higher Worlds the advice to think deliberately, repeatedly and energetically as much error as possible in order to develop hidden soul forces. This exercise actually somewhat resembles what is described there, however, demonstrating that we are indeed not to proceed on the basis of some clumsy error, but need rather to meet two requirements. We must form a mental image that does not correspond with outer reality. Take, for example, the often recommended meditation on the Rose Cross. Viewed one-sidedly from the standpoint of external reality, that is an erroneous image, an error. Roses do not grow on dead black wood. However, we are dealing here with a symbolic image, an allegorical picturing. It does not give a direct representation of a truth, it symbolizes one. From the standpoint of physical fact, it is therefore erroneous. Yet, in a sense, not entirely so, since it then again symbolizes significant spiritual reality. When we meditate on the Rose Cross, 
we give ourselves to a mental image that, though it is indeed erroneous, looked at with material reality in mind, meets the requirement that we take an error into our souls. It isn't error in the ordinary sense. We are fulfilling quite special requirements by giving ourselves not to ordinary error but to a significant symbolization. We now come to the second condition, which is that we must fulfill certain other requirements if we thus devote ourselves to meditation, to concentration, and so forth. If you penetrate into the whole spirit of what is set forth in title How to Know Higher Worlds, or the second half of Title and Outline of Esoteric Science, you will see that a particular state of soul is needed for proper meditation and concentration. The soul must possess certain moral qualities in order for that which is to happen to come about in the right way. Why is this a requirement? Why are certain moral qualities demanded as a prerequisite to devoting oneself to such a symbolic and externally erroneous mental image? That is again a matter that must be thoroughly taken into account. Nothing good is normally achieved by giving oneself up to meditation and concentration and the like without attempting to achieve that state of the soul which has been so often characterized. Experience shows that unless we have built a foundation in the characterized condition, the world that opens to us by waking hidden soul forces has a destructive, disintegrative effect on human life rather than a health-giving, constructive one. The outcome will be healthy, helping to develop further what is already present in us, only if meditation and concentration grow in the soil of the indicated soul condition. That is proved by experience. Experience also demonstrates clearly to what pathological phenomena fall victim those who fail to base themselves on the characterized state of soul and are driven instead by mere curiosity or passion or the like to seek to ascend to higher worlds by means of meditation and so on. They have taken in a reality, for error is a reality, and it affects their souls. It is a reality that, that does not belong to the external sense world. Such individuals actually take into their souls a supersensible force, a supersensible entity. The error, with its forces and its being, is an effect-causing element that cannot have a foundation in the physical world. But it may not be allowed to work in this way. Its supersensible energies must be permitted to act without special grounding in the proper soul condition. The reason for this is that, though we have a supersensible force in error, if this force makes its appearance and shows itself as error, it is quite certainly not a good force. It can become a good force only if it is grounded in the soil of a right soul condition. <laughs> Translate that into the terms in which spiritual science often discusses these matters. It would be said that we can come to know a supersensible world, for we learn to know error. We do not need artificial means of ascending to that world, since it extends into us by way of sending us error, and it has an effect. The world that we come to know in this way, however, is not a good one. We must bring from the other side a good world in a soul condition out of which alone the error can work in the right way in the soul. If I were to express this paradoxically, I would have to say that we learn to know the supersensible world in the sense-perceptible world because we have error there. We thus first come to know the devil without recourse to the supersensible world. We become acquainted with something not good, something that even announces its presence and reveals itself as such. There was good reason for the statement, quote, People do not notice the devil, even when he has them by the collar, unquote, for he, 
like error, is indeed present. If we use our accustomed terms to state this, we would say that we come to know the luciferic forces, to know the supersensible world at first in the form of the luciferic forces. Our only escape is to play ostrich, staking our heads into the sand and refusing to recognize this world. We can do that, but it does not solve the problem. That is the fact. The fact that the existence of error in the outer world is an inner proof of the existence of the supersensible, of the luciferic aspect of the supersensible, that is the opponent of human nature, would require a great many lectures to provide more than a mere sketch. We fall prey to Lucifer if we penetrate into the supersensible world by deliberately taking error into our thinking without providing a safeguard through the necessary moral state of soul. Is there a particular reason for discussing these matters? Yesterday we quoted the statement of Aristotle that in addition to what we inherit from our ancestral line through our parents, God gives us our supersensible nature. Thus God, in connection with the parents, creates the supersensible part for every human being that enters the physical world. If you recall what was said at the close of yesterday's lecture, we could not just accept that assertion. We found all kinds of things that were not compatible with this Aristotelian assertion. Now, our dear friend, Dr. Unger has shown and proved clearly, very rightly so, that the existence of the contradiction is justified. Again, I would have to give a whole series of explanations to prove to you that a contradiction is not justifiable when someone makes an assertion that leads to consequences at odds with that assertion. That holds good in Aristotle's case. For if God were to create the supersensible element in human beings, at their entrance into the physical world, a state of unfulfillment would be the lot of everyone living after death in that supersensible world, a situation observable in Aristotle's own development. It would have to be assumed that God created human beings to be dissatisfied. That cannot be right in Aristotle's opinion either. We cannot possibly agree with any wise person that what comes into existence through the ancestral line is linked with a direct God-given supersensible element. In the first place, this is founded on a proof out of the truth. Aristotle seeks to give only a proof out of the truth, but that is impossible, as we have seen, for the existence of truth is no proof of anything supersensible. Therefore, proof of a supersensible world on the basis of truth, is of no use. In the second place, if we assume that our supersensible element is created by God as we enter the physical world, it would be beyond explaining that we could go on after death into an imperfect state of being. <coughs> what was described yesterday as, quote, Aristotle's supposition, unquote, is consequently illogical he fails to consider the luciferic principle, which is the nearest supersensible element that has been given to human beings, revealing itself as very powerful and experienced by us as such. Nor does he consider the fact that we do not properly come to terms with the luciferic principle until we allow it to gain access to us, permit its participation in us, at the moment of our origin as supersensible beings, in as far as we look upward from human beings as they are in the physical world to the supersensible world. Thus the human being cannot be born of God alone, but only of his joint activity with Lucifer. We stand here on ground that you would do well to note, and I urge you to do so, because it is owing to the aforementioned fact which has taken hold of the unconscious feeling of Occidental peoples with regard to the accepting of a spiritual world, that right up to our time the leading lights in academia have been unable to achieve an open mind about what we call reincarnation. What I have explained today, 
when I stated that people can more easily believe in the devil than in anything else of a supersensible nature, and that he is a real concern of theirs, could not have applied to people of earlier times. They felt the same things, however, that I have now expressed in ideas. They sensed Lucifer's presence alongside God's. And they felt something further, the justification of which will become clear only later in these lectures. They felt that a spiritual, God-created element was given to us in and with the corporeal. They simply could not see how to reconcile the recognition of the physical human being on the physical plane with the acceptance of the human being having a divine, supersensible origin or a supersensible basis at all. They simply couldn't grasp this. People of Western traditions experienced a very different problem than did Buddhists, for example, whose entire thinking and feeling made it easy for them to accept the idea of reincarnation. Buddhists are as though born with the feeling that our physical bodies represent a kind of denial of the divine, that our corporeality is a waste product of divinity, and that our striving to attain freedom from it and ascend to higher worlds where it possesses no significance is justified. Aristotle saw it differently from the viewpoint of the disciples of Buddha. Aristotle says that we take our supersensible element through the gates of death, but must then look down on what we were during our embodiment, and that our development in the supersensible world depends on that life in an earthly body. There was nothing useless in it. God put us into bodies because he saw it as necessary for our total development. He could not have provided us with that development if we had not been given a body. In other words, Aristotle valued the experience to be had in physical existence. Here the concern is not with concepts and abstractions, but with the content of sensations. Buddhists do not have such a f content of sensations, as I have often shown. They have a real feeling that human beings passed through a state of not knowing that brought them into touch with the sense world and that they must free themselves from that through which they have come into contact with the sense-perceptible world. There is a feeling in Buddhism that human beings are rightly human only after they have cast off all aspects of the physical sense-perceptible existence. As an exponent of the spiritual life of the Occident, Aristotle could not share that feeling, nor can any who stand in the spiritual life of the Occident. They may persuade themselves that they do. They can honor the Buddhist point of view and even take extraordinary pleasure in it. But that is always the result of disavowing the feelings of their own souls. It is characteristic of Western people to recognize divinity within the sensible world, to see that world as imbued with spirit and permeated with God. Even for those in the West, who have been influenced by Buddhism and temporarily disavow the spirit inherent in the sense-perceptible world, a feeling for it continues to live within them and will always be present. Precisely this valuing of the physical lived in Aristotle, not for its own sake, but as a necessary point through which evolution must pass as an essential prerequisite in the total evolution of humanity. It was something that lived on in Western cultures until the 19th century. It is one of the reasons why outstanding Western minds could not befriend the idea of reincarnation. The feeling that the Luciferic principle is justified and the acceptance that the divine exists also in external things worked together. This evoked feelings of a kind that I want to comment on with reference to a man who truly belongs in the category of the most profound personalities of the Western world. I want to point out the presence of this feeling in the significant philosopher Froschammer, footnote, Jakob Froschammer, 1821-1893, liberal Roman Catholic priest and scholar of Thomas Aquinas' philosophy. He wrote books on Generationism and Traducianism, 
which states that the soul is inherited materially, along with the physical body, from the parents. His books were placed on the index of works officially banned by the Church. He was excommunicated in 1871. You will find it described in his book on the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. He set down in it a very extensive comparison of his own philosophy with that of Thomism. There is a section where he expresses his feeling about the possibility of reincarnation. He is certainly to be regarded as a representative of the Western worldview, in other words, as a person in whom we can see how difficult it was for the preceding centuries to acknowledge the teaching of reincarnation, which must be a basic nerve of our pneumatosophy. Froschammer says, quote, Deriving as it does from God, the human soul can only be regarded as the product or work of divine imagination. For the human soul and the world itself indeed must originate out of divine force and activity, since nothing can derive from mere nothingness. Yet this force and activity of God must act as a preparation for creation and as formative forces for its realization and perpetuation, that is, as a creative force, not merely formal, but actual. It must be an imagination, imminent in the world, continually working and creating, a sustaining force or potency, a world imagination, as was explained earlier. End of quote. Footnote, Jakob Froschammer, Die Philosophie des Thomas von Aquino, Leipzig, 1888, pages 418 to 419. End of footnote. I would like to mention that Froschammer also wrote a book entitled Fantasy as a Basic Principle of the World Process. Footnote here, the word fantasy in German indicates imagination in the more usual sense of the term, that is, a creative thought process. End of footnote. There he shows that fantasy itself is the universal creative principle. He presents fantasy as this principle, where Hegel indicates the idea and Schopenhauer the will. In this book, he says, quote, As concerns the doctrine of the pre-existence of the soul, souls are regarded either as eternal or as transitory, but in any case created in the beginning and altogether, a doctrine that has been resurrected in recent times and is considering cap- and is considered capable of solving all sorts of psychological problems, it is connected with the doctrine of the transmigration of souls and their confinement in earthly bodies. Unquote. This was written in 1889. I indicated in the Karlsruhe cycle that there were always those in the 19th century who were exponents of the doctrine of reincarnation. Footnote. Lecture of October 6, 1911, from title From Jesus to Christ. End of footnote. Froschammer knew that too, of course, and therefore he continued, quote, According to this doctrine, neither the direct divine creation of souls nor the creative production of new human beings with regard to the body and soul would take place at procreation but only a new union of the soul with the body. It is a kind of becoming flesh or a sinking of the soul into the body, at least partially, so that one part would be encompassed and bound by the body, the other would extend beyond and above it, asserting a certain independence as spirit. The soul, however, cannot break away from the body until death severs the union and brings liberation and deliverance, at least from this union, In that case, the spirit of the human being would resemble in its relation to the body the poor souls in purgatory, as they are usually represented on votive tablets or by daubers, that is, as bodies half engulfed in roaring flames, but with their upper parts, the souls, protruding and gesticulating. Consider the position and significance this conception would imply for the contrast of the sexes, the concept of human species, wedlock, and the relation of parents to their children. The contrast of sexes would be but a system of bondage, wedlock an institution for fulfilling the task this involves, parents minions of the law for holding and imprisoning the souls of their children, 
while children themselves owe this miserable, weary imprisonment to their parents with whom they have nothing further in common. Everything connected with this relationship would be based on wretched illusion, as would all that humanity associates with the contrast of the sexes. What a formidable role the sex relationship plays! How greatly all the human beings' aspirations are determined by it! What yearning it excites! What bliss it yields! What a source of bodily and spiritual transport! What an inexhaustible subject of artistic and particularly poetic creation! Now we are to believe that this contrast is but an arrangement for embodying and imprisoning poor souls that are thereby committed to earthly misery, consigned to the toils, passions, temptations, and dangers of their earthly existence, rising at best with only a portion of their being into a beyond, or as one says, the transcendental, or actually transcendent. The significance of such a sex relationship, then, is not to be found in a continuous renewal, a rejuvenation corresponding to the spring of existence, quite the contrary. And the underlying longing and rapture it engenders would not be based upon the satisfaction of a lofty creative urge, as one would assume should be the case, but would emanate from a pitiful ambition to imprison new souls in bodily forms that obscure and estrange the greater part of their real selves. The end of the quote. Thus you see, Excuse me. This, you see, is an individual who speaks sincerely and honestly out of the spiritual life of his period. There is plenty of reason for us to acquaint ourselves with the difficulties that Western thinkers of the past centuries experienced, with the problem of acknowledging what must be the basic nerve of our own worldview. It is just in dealing with problems as vital as those in these lectures that it becomes essential to be clearly aware the people who come honestly to spiritual science encounter great difficulties. One of our tasks as theosophists is not to take things lightly, but to acquaint ourselves with the problems experienced by individuals who come from Western culture and want to lift themselves into the life of the spirit as this is presented to us in general by spiritual science and in particular by what we can call pneumatosophy. That is the end of lecture 10.